getting down to the wire of John's amazing lecture. Let's pray before we get in here. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just pray that uh, as we close out First John, Father, as we slowly come to the end, that we are taught by his wisdom, by the power of the word of God that you've given to him. May it uh, touch us, probe our hearts, Father. Help us to set our minds in the right place according to your word and all that we believe and all that we hold dear. May it be according to your perfect revelation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are getting close to the end. And John has said so much so far. And I hope you're going to return to 1 John often because you should be in here. That's a critical, critical truth for the law of the church, for any church. So the final section is kind of a summary of the main things he wants. Brings things to a close here. And there's three main truths that tie together. And if you grasp all three, you're doing really well. And you can tell what the three are because he introduces each ones with the word, you know. And if you, if you get a hold of these three different things well and settle them in your mind and in your heart, um, it really turns out to be a pretty comprehensive grasp of what a Christian worldview is. You know what a worldview is? When we say worldview, you know what that is? Uh, it's, it's what you believe about the world. What, what you believe about it. So it, it could be an individual or it could be a societal, but every person or society has some kind of view of the reality of the world, what it's all about. It's, so the world, a worldview is like a lens through which you see and understand and interpret the whole universe and, and our place in that universe. Now most people don't think about it very much, so they just kind of function based on whatever's floated into their minds or whatever they have a belief about. Because most people don't think about it, but some view of reality motivates everybody and is used, that, rea that sense of reality is used to explain what happens to them, what they see and hear and how to interpret it, that everybody has a worldview of some kind. So why are things the way they are? Your worldview is your answer to that question. If you, if, if you ask somebody, why is everything the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? What they tell you, that's their worldview, if you ask that question. Here's an interesting fact. You can't choose the world you were born into. Hate to, hate to spread that simple truth. I, I know it can upset some people. But you actually can't change the world you live in. We're here, um, period. You have, you have no power to remake the world, to, to change reality. It is what it is. I mean, you can remake the world in the sense of, I'm going to make my little corner of the world a sunshine place. Okay, that's fine, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the reality that you're born into, that you grow up in, and you're going to die in. You can't change it. It's the, the system is set the way it is. Now, I know in the movies and in comic books, there's multiple universes, and you can pass between them, and everything's a little different. That's, that's not true. <laughs> there's no multiple universe thing. Um, we, and we all, see, we all see that the world is amazing, and wonderful and scary and awful all at the same time. The world we live in, the world we can't change, the world we're born into, the world we exist in. So why, why is it that way? Why is it wonderful and amazing and scary and awful? Why, why is that? Well, one wor worldview would say it's, it's a great cosmic accident. It just happened that way. Everything kind of exploded and here we are. You remember, um, if you're ancient, as I am, 
<laughs> Way back in the year 1980, they had a television show um, that was very, very popular. It was a science show, at least it presented itself as a science show, and, and the, the guy that narrated it and created the show, his name was Carl Sagan. He was an astronomer, and um, he wrote fiction as well as a lot of science stuff, but um, the show began with a statement. And it's interesting because it's a science show, but the statement was not a science statement. But every episode began with it. And it goes like this. The cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. That's not a science statement. Science can't prove that one way or the other, whether that's true or not. But that's a, that's, that's a worldview. So he was giving you his worldview going in to tell you about outer space and all these interesting things going on. So, um, but that is a... That is not science. That was a faith statement based on a worldview. What's the worldview? Materialism is the worldview. It's one of many worldviews. The material world, world is all there is. There's, there's nothing beyond it. There's no spiritual realm. There's, we're just, every thought you have is just atoms clashing together and you know chemicals and biology and all those kind of things. So in the materialistic worldview, things like love or honor or justice, or good and evil, they're not real things. They're just things our, our brains and social condi conditioning is kind of given to us to sort of function in the world and help us survive and continue the species and all that kind of stuff, but those aren't real things. Honor is not a real thing. Love is not a real thing. And those guys that are materialists, they'll tell you that. Love isn't real, it's chemical. Other worldviews say that there is more to the cosmos that there's more than what instruments can measure because that's the materialist worldview. The only reality is what can be measured. So do we have an immaterial part of ourselves? Do we have a soul that is distinct from, separate from biology? Those are the questions. Is there a purpose? And what is the purpose? And if there is a purpose, who gave it to us? Right? Worldview your worldview will answer those questions in whatever way you've come to conclude about things. Now the Bible, even though it was written over 1500 years from Moses to the Apostle John, who's writing this letter we're looking at, there's a really clear and consistent worldview over the entire sweep and scope of the Bible and all the hundreds of years it was written in. And that worldview can be set forth in a, a series of statements, just simple statements. And in 1 John, John doesn't state the, the basic statements because those he assumes, everybody he's writing to already believes those things. So the basic statements he doesn't talk about are, there is a God who made the world. That's number one, right? He is limitless in power and he's a person. He is holy and good and trustworthy and concerned with his creation. That's who God is. And we are made in his image. We are different than the animal realm. So we have great significance. Great significance. We're the peak of creation. So with that already existing foundation, so John knows that his readers, he's writing to a church here, they already know those things. So he's going to focus these last verses of the book, the letter, on these great matters of salvation. And they're all themes we've already looked at through 1 John, if you've been with us through this whole study here. But he's going to restate the ones that he wants to kind of leave lingering in their minds and in their hearts here. So those, those themes are that human beings need a savior. And we have, we have a savior in God the Son. 
And in him we can receive eternal life. He came to bring us eternal life. That's the sort of the foundational salvation truths John talks about. So he begins each of these three declarations with this expression, you know. And I didn't count, but I don't know how many times, probably 20 or more times in this five chapters in this letter. He says, we know, we know, we know, you know, you know, we know. And he's going to end that way too. So he's going to have these, these three statements are all going to be that. So how do we know? How do we know? Well, John knows because he was there. So he knows some really important things. In fact, that's how the letter begins. I'm going to go right back to chapter one and read you the first verses because we're right at the end. I'm going to go back to the beginning because this is how we know. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that life was manifested and we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's how he started the letter. So he says, we heard, we saw, we touched Jesus, the word of life. And not just the ministry of Jesus, he's talking about the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. A man cannot forget that. Ever. And that's what he's talking about. That's how John knows. So now, here we are, we're 2,000 years later. How do we know? How do we know? Well, how do we know any spiritual truth? We believe we have objective truth in the Bible. That is God's revelation to man. We believe that because, we believe that, I believe that because Jesus believed it. If you read the Gospels and everything Jesus said, he absolutely, completely affirmed everything in the Bible, the entire Old Testament. That was his foundation for everything. If he is indeed the eternal son of God, then we trust him. So I believe him. And he said the Bible was true down to the tiniest letters. Every jot and tittle, he said. A Christian also knows the Bible is true by the work of the Holy Spirit that comes to us and opens our heart to it. He tells us that it's true. He witnesses to our inside, our self, our true self. Nothing less than a supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit can bring a human being to believe, to have saving faith. That's something God does. It's a work of God. That's why faith is much more, it's much more than believing facts. In fact, you can believe the story of Jesus is true. You can believe it happened. You can believe he did miracles. You can believe he died on the cross. You can believe he rose from the dead. You can believe it because it's your religion. And you were taught that and you accept what you were taught. If Christ has no place in your heart though, and you feel no warmth toward him as your savior, if you don't acknowledge him as your king, your king, not just that he's some king, if there's no gratitude or wonder at his death for sin on your behalf, if you're not awed by that and humbled by that, then it's just religion. And that doesn't save. There's got to be a relationship with him regarding who he actually is. 
That's, that's what has to happen. Religion is just sort of something you hold on to. Well, sometimes it's cultural. I was raised this, so that's what I am. And I believe those things because that's what I was taught. That's not enough. Or it could be, well, I'm going to die someday and I want to get somewhere good. So I'm going to say I, I'm, going to, I'm going to just believe this thing because, you know, it's kind of a hedge. It's a ticket. It's a ticket to heaven. It's a hedge against damnation. I don't want to go there. But if that's all it is to you, it's not a work of God in your heart. You, you have not been awakened. The faith that saves is understanding who Jesus is, what he has done, and being so overwhelmed by his mercy that you love him and will honor him with your life. So God brings forth saving faith in us by the life-giving breath of the Holy Spirit. And when we receive it, then we know what we believe. We know what we believe. We also know, according to all that we've learned in 1 John, that there are certain signs of true faith that come forth from us. We talked about those so many times because he talks about it so many times. Remember what the three tests are of whether you know God or not? The first one was you keep God's commandments. Not perfectly because none of us are perfect, but you care about that. We love the brethren. We love one another. And the last one was we know that Jesus, we know that Jesus was God in human flesh and that he died for our sins. We know that. We know who Jesus really is and we don't leave him. That's what John told us in this letter. So all of that we've already seen in 1 John. Now I want to look at these words here starting in verse 18 of chapter 5. So these are three we know statements. The first one is verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. That's a little bit mysterious, some of that language there. So the first phrase, it doesn't mean we're sinless. When he says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Anybody in here not sin? <laughs> Come on, be honest. We all sin, right? And we've talked about this many times uh, extensively here because John is very upfront that all of us sin. In fact, that's also in the first chapter of this little book here when we when we he tells us we need to confess our sins right first John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that assumes that we sin and then right after that he says if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us so we all sin John knows that John sins too so first John 5 18 is talking about an ongoing dedication to sin now don't do this to me, but I understand if you do. If you go, well, I'm reading verse 18 and it doesn't say any, it doesn't say ongoing sins, it just says sins. Now actually your translation might say ongoing sins. Let me try to explain to you why that is. It's in the, it's in the verbs. Guys remember grammar from school? Verbs. <laughs> Greek, the Bible was written in Greek, the New Testament. Greek verbs are different than our verbs. They work differently. So if you have a present tense in English, it just means it's right now, right? Something happening at the moment. In Greek, a present tense means it's a continuing action. It's going on. It's an ongoing thing. And that's what he uses here. Now, if you have an ESV, I, Mark, I know you have an ESV, right? Some of you guys have an English Standard Version. That's different than what I have. I have a New American Standard Bible. So they're all a little bit different, right? The ESV actually says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a very accurate 
rendering of the present tense verb there. Now my Bible, they don't want to, the guys that translated the New American Standard, they didn't want to add words, so they just say sins. But you, sh but you can misunderstand what it means from that. Like any sin ever? Uh, if you're born of God, you never ever sin, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying present tense, you have an ongoing sinful lifestyle. You, you're committed to being a sinner. You like sin. You're following sin. You're going down that path of sin. That's where translators just have to make choices. Do we stick extra words in there to explain the tense or do we just kind of leave it like it is? So New American Standard kind of left it like it was. The ESV guys, I think rightly added that element of what the present tense verb means by saying keep, keep on going sin, keep, keep sinning, you know, that idea. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Good, at least three people I heard say that. Okay. So, um, so it would not be the right conclusion to read what my Bible says, everyone who's been born of God um, doesn't sin and read that as sinless. It's not his point. In fact, he said that already in another section where like 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where he said, no one who is born of God practices sin, present tense again, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. When it says he cannot sin, again, present tense. You cannot live a, leave a light, lead a lifestyle, practice sin, and be born again. You're going to fight your sins. You're going to have a battle with your own sin because you're, you're just not going to say, oh, I don't care what God says. That's not, a, that's not a person that has the Holy Spirit in him that would say that. So, John himself added the word practices sin in 1 John 3, 9, or does sin, depending on your translation there. So we're talking about an ongoing pattern. I know that's a little technical. Now, now you can say, well, it's all Greek to me, and, and you'd be exactly right. It's all, it's all Greek. You can finally use that expression. But anyway, what follows that is John's main point. So when John says we know, what we know is that a believer doesn't go on sinning, continuing in sin, because, and the because is really important, because he who is born of God, that's Jesus. He who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So the, the most important part for you to get there is the one who was born of God, which is Christ. He's eternally born of God, right? He keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So the evil one wants to shipwreck your faith. That's his job. And he is a master deceiver. He's really good at his job. And the only way we can survive his assaults on us because we are weak and sinful is that Christ keeps us. It's divine action on God's part that keeps us. Satan wants us to fall. He wants us to give up. He wants us to fall away. He wants us to walk away. Christ keeps us. So Satan can unleash everything he has against us, but if you're born of God, you will not fail. Jesus will hold you. That's a really good thing to know. Really good thing to know. And it says in verse 18, again in my translation, it says the evil one does not touch him. That word touch is a little stronger than touch. It kind of means grab. In fact, a really good example of that word is in John's gospel when Mary Magdalene sees the risen Jesus and she won't let him go. He says, stop clinging to me. I have to ascend to my father. Remember that moment? That's the same word. So that's what he's talking about here. The evil one can, it will not cling to you. He can't hold on to you because Christ keeps you. That's the great comfort we have there. Satan cannot hold you. He can try all of his arts on you and you might fall for some of them sometimes, but Christ keeps you. 
so he will not succeed. Christ protects you. You are secure in Christ. So a, a key component of a Christian worldview then is that his salvation is secure. Christ keeps you. That's the first thing you need to know. Any person born again, the technical word is regenerated by the Spirit of God, is kept by God, held in his hand. Remember John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's a verse to memorize. So if you're born again, Christ keeps you. Now, on to the second we know. So, the second key component of the Christian's worldview is that there are only two kinds of people in the whole world. Everybody you meet falls into one or two categories. There are people who belong to God by His grace and those who remain under Satan's thumb, if you will. That is, to live, and live under and believe the lies of Satan. There are either those that follow God by God's grace his free gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit or there, are, or there are people that believe the lies of Satan. So verse 19, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is a major worldview statement that the Bible gives. This is God's word. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Major worldview statement. So there are two camps. There's two families. There's two kingdoms, if you will. Say it any way you like, but everybody's on one team or the other team. Everybody. There aren't three teams. There aren't eight teams. There's two teams. Nobody can sit it out either. Well, I'm just an independent. No, you're not. <laughs> If you're an independent, you're under the power of the evil one. You believe his lies. You belong to God or Satan. You are twice born or you are once born. You are in Christ or you are out of Christ. You are forgiven or you are unforgiven, depending on which team you're on. And I'm just using that language. Again, the world you live in, it's not a comic book and it's not a movie. There are no alternative universes to live in. You, you're born into the world you live in and you've got to deal with what you've got. Which team? There's only two teams in the real world. So the Christian worldview is there is only one God, self-existent, immortal, infinite, personal, and God made rational creatures. He made two kinds of rational creatures, spiritual beings we call angels and spiritual physical beings like us that are welded together that, that uh, th there's two natures in us we're called human beings that's what we are and he made his creatures to enjoy him and to serve him and to delight in him and uh, be a glory to his creation that's why he made them human beings were amazing we're, we're, we're the height of creation we possess all these marvelous gifts that separate us from the animal kingdom. There's no comparison. There's nothing like a human being on this plane that we see. We're the highest. God made us to be regents 
uh, over creation. You know what a regent is? A regent is somebody that reigns in place of a king. God's the king. And we are regents. We were made to be regents over creation. We take care of creation. We watch over it. We're kings under his kingship. And we rule on his behalf. We're supposed to guard and keep the creation that he made. And we're made to be kings and queens of this most special planet of all. One thing I learned on Cosmos is there's nothing like this big blue marble we live on. <laughs> Just teeming with all kinds of incredible life. And anywhere you go in the universe there's nothing like that. I know they're looking for microscopic things everywhere all the time. There might be a little amoeba on Mars or something. They haven't found that. I don't think they will. But Earth is so different. It's not like we got a couple of worms crawling around. We've got this incredible life everywhere. Unique, glorious. I've got a bird living at my house. I just love to watch him fly and land. It's incredible. The intricacy of his nature and his ability and the structure of his body and all of that. It's amazing. We have a problem. Have you noticed the world has a problem? We are kings. We are kings that have abdicated. You know what it means when you abdicate your throne? I don't want it. You have my crown. They take the crowns off and they throw it back. It's actually worse than that. Human beings are rebels. We're not only refusing to be co-regents with God on, over his creation, we are rebels against him. Metaphorically speaking, we've taken our crowns off and walked out and said we're going to do our own thing. You know, before our creation or maybe because of our creation, the Bible doesn't give a timeline for angels, but some angels rebelled against God, spiritual beings, and abandoned God. And their leader came to the first two humans and persuaded them to do the same thing. Abandon God. You will be like God, he said. You will determine good and evil, he said. And not live under his thumb. Well, he didn't say that literally. That's, I'm paraphrasing what he said. It's all in Genesis chapter 3. But man rebelled against God. Human beings did. So this great contrast comes into play. That's in verse 19. We are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You could use Jesus' word picture. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous teaching. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through that wide gate. And then he said, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that are on it. Just a few. So narrow, life. Wide, destruction. Narrow, few. Wide, many. So the path to destruction is wide. You don't have to worship Satan. You don't have to love Satan. You don't have to be at the Grammys. <laughs> Even if you think there is no Satan, you're on the wide path. Doesn't matter. As long as you're not with God, you're, on, you're under Satan's power. You're lying in his, in his power. You're part of the world. You lie in his power when you believe anything except the truth. Anything. As long as you don't follow Jesus, Satan doesn't care what you do. 
You don't have to worship him. You don't have to go to the Grammys and worship Satan with all the glitterati people. You could be wearing a white shirt with a narrow black tie and a little badge and ride a bicycle and go to people's houses and tell them a completely false gospel. You could do that and use the name of Jesus. You could do that. In fact, I think Satan's favorite ploy is um, what the Apostle Paul calls preaching another Jesus. Because Jesus is so wonderful, people listen when you talk about him. So Satan likes to talk about Jesus too. He just twists him. So it's something else other than what the Jesus we find in the Bible. So God says religions, philosophies, cults, speculations, theories, opinions, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All of that comes from him. Amen. All of that is his doing. I think there are demons that, that write theological treatises and political philosophies and sell them to people. I, I do think that sometimes. That they're behind all this stuff. Scripture says so much about all this. The, the world as it stands is against the Lord. And Christ delivers us from the world, its ways and its lies. Galatians 1.4 says, Christ gave himself for us that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Because the world is full of Satan's lies. 1 Corinthians 2.12 We have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God. Two spirits. The spirit of the world and the spirit of God. You can only have one. You choose which, one you're, which way you're going to go. Not three teams, two teams. James tells us in James 4.4 Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's what he says. Why would that be? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why. And of course Jesus himself talked about the world with his disciples. In fact it was at the Last Supper. John was there. John who wrote this letter was there. Leaning on Jesus' breast. It's in John 15, 18. Jesus said if the world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Those are the words of Christ. So God, God's kingdom and what scripture calls the world are at odds with each other. They're at war with each other. Absolute odds. The world is in rebellion against him still. And that rebellion grows more and more intense. I, I, I'm actually, I'm the kind of person that assumes the worst about the world because I do have a Christian worldview, but I'm still amazed at how bad it is and how, how, how more twisted it can get. It, it blows me away. It really does. I'm like kind of shocked, continuously shocked. And I've lived a long time, but the capacity of human wickedness to grow, it's amazing. It, it's, it's stunning. It actually is. Everyone knows the world. Everyone knows, I think, that the world would be better if everyone was selfless, honest, faithful, trustworthy, incorruptible, sexually restrained in some reasonable way, 
Every good thing, though, is corrupted. Every good thing is corrupted. Every day, the news is just filled with human wickedness every single day. And I don't mean sensational stories about murders and crime sprees and things. I mean, just basic crumminess. You know, the whole, we have Western civilization, which was sort of founded on Christianity in a general way and kind of battled using Christian principles and kind of building these political philosophies based on a loose sort of Christian idea, Christendom and all of that. And things kind of started to improve a lot and then we've cast it all away. We said, we're not gonna do that anymore. That won't, that, that's evil. The world says that's evil. Christianity is evil. So when Christians started to, this Christian influence I should say, slowly started to protect women and provide safe spaces for women after hundreds and hundreds of years of them not having that kind of safety and now they're not allowed to be safe anymore. They're not allowed to feel safe anymore. A guy can come into their safe spaces. Women have to compete against men in sports. I mean all these things that are twisted and children. What? Just, just think about 50 years ago. Would they have a drag queen reading books to children? In a library, a public library? Look, there's a lot of things wrong with the world 50 years ago, but not that one. The targeting of children in our culture is incredible. And it's in our schools. It's an ideology that is literally anti-God and promoting the most perverse things to people. Now look, you know, a lot of the same stuff that's gone on all these years is still going on. War, conquest, torture. I mean, half the world is under horrible, horrible, giant countries, you know, China and Russia and all these countries. They're under horrible tyrannies, brutal tyrannies. People keep falling out of the windows in Russia. Rich and powerful men suddenly jump out of the window. I don't know if they were pushed or not. I think so. <laughs> and now... Many governments, including Los Angeles, they believe it's actually a good thing if people can steal and rob and get away with it because they're oppressed. It's a, it's a good thing for them to be able to do that. It doesn't hurt their soul because they don't have a soul. It's kind of an equal payout. They believe that. So Dr. King's beautiful dream is just thrown on the ash heap. He's old hat and he didn't understand. So all, everything good that rises up is cast out. So Western culture is just corruption and darkness and perversion and wickedness. I've got well, one more thing I'll tell you. I just read about this this week. You say, well, th what's evil about this? Well, just think about the evil behind this. So in Baltimore, there's a school district, 23 schools. Not one student is proficient, basic proficient in math. Not one, not one in an entire school, school system, 23 schools. Say, so, well, what's evil about that? What do you mean? <laughs> These people are literally paid. In fact, Baltimore schools have some of the highest teacher salaries in the country. They're paid, and all the administrators are paid a great amount of money to let children grow up without basic knowledge. And nobody cares. And when the, when the news people in, in Baltimore chase after the you know, town council people and the school board people, they, they won't talk to them. Well, there might be a problem, I don't know, but that's so wicked to not care about that and take money for not doing your job, you know? There's, it's, it's just corruption, it's just corruption, laziness.
an inability to do what's right. So the decline of civilization, you can literally feel it, right? So that's all wickedness. Canada, you know, Canada's like this super progressive place. They've got so many people that are being pushed into assisted suicide now in Canada. Canada the, the population of Canada and the population of California is about the same. We have assisted suicide here too, but it's maybe a thousand people a year. There it's many tens of thousands of people a year that are pushed into suicide, to dying, because they can't afford to take care of them anymore. You know, they promised health care for everyone. The only way to do that is to knock off the old and the sick and the elderly. So that's what they do. It's scandalous. It's evil. It's wicked. But you know, if you're a materialist, there's just, that's just a, a body there. It's still living, but there's no dignity. There's no inherent dignity because our dignity is the fact that we're made in the image of God. So, but that person is no different than a chimp or a duck. Really, not really, a materialist would say. So I don't know of any rational explanation for this except the Bible one, which is the true one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's the explanation. Okay, so what have we learned here? What do we know? Number one, verse 18. We know that those born of God turn away from sin and they're secure in Christ. Number two, we know that there's only two kingdoms. There's one ruled by God and there's a world, the whole world ruled by Satan. And we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now there's a third one, okay? Verse 20. The third thing we know, and praise God for this. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. <laughs> And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. So here God is called him who is true. What a wonderful title. Him who is true. I love that. And we can trust our creator because he not only speaks the truth. He is truth. He is true. So, you know, men worship a lot of gods, nowadays mainly ourselves. But he is true. He's authentic. He's the real God, the true God. And we know him in his son. The son of God has given us understanding. The son of God has opened our minds and our hearts to see through the lies of the world. The lies that the world lives under. The lies that the world promotes all the time. The Lord has opened our minds to understand what is true. Or I should say who is true. And it's God. And, and the son of God. So verse 20 focuses not just on the truth about the world. It has the right world view. But a personal relationship. That we can have with the eternal God. It's not just having the right world view. You can know God. You can have fellowship with God. You can be a friend of God. A child of God. With the eternal creator of all things. Through his son. And he is completely trustworthy. And we know him. What a privilege. To know him. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we do that we are in him. So here in 1 John 5.20. It says we are in him. Because the son of God has come. We are in his son. Jesus Christ it says. We know the father in the son. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Son is the eternal God become flesh. Colossians 2.9 says, In Him, talking about Jesus, 
all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete and he is head over all rule and authority. That's, that's the Jesus we worship. The son is God. He's the true king. It's his world really that we live in. He made it. It belongs to him. And in him everything has been done for us so that we will dwell forever with our creator when we pass out of this broken world. That's because in him we have a completed salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption. That's a really important word. To redeem something is to pay a price and buy its freedom. And that's what he did for us. Christ redeemed us. And we are in fact in him who is true, John says. That's his language. And if that's true, we're secure, we're loved, we have a close relationship with the living eternal God from which we draw wisdom and understanding and hope and transformation. All of that comes from him. You know, Jesus at the Last Supper compared our relationship with God as, as branches on a vine. You know, if you cut a branch off a vine, how healthy is it? It stops doing things. <laughs> it's, it's life comes from the vine. Jesus said, John 15, 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus himself is the source of all spiritual life and good fruit. We bear fruit as we abide in him. But the world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, except for us. Because we are in Christ. And we are kept and protected from the evil one. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the best news ever. And that's our job, to just testify that there's a Savior of the world for the world. And that's how we bear fruit. We live out his love and we share the message of his redemption. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. So I'm almost done here. Give me two minutes to kind of sort this out because it's an interesting sentence. We should want everybody to know him who is true, right? Because... He is the truth. He actually is the truth. And because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If we love people, we want to rescue them from lying in the power of the evil one. And bring them the good news about Jesus. Jesus rescues people from the evil one. Now that very last phrase in verse 20 we have to look at. John says, we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. And then he adds this. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life. That could be one of the most important statements in the Bible about the deity of Christ. Um, and I want to point that out. So two minutes of grammar, okay? Grammar, go back to school again, pay attention. This is the true God and eternal life. What is this pointing back to? Right? So you got a pronoun, this. What's it pointing back to? This is the true God. This is the true God. The antecedent of this. 
So there's two persons before the word this being talked about. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, we're talking about him and his son, right? So two persons. Him who is true would be God the Father. The Father would be the antecedent, could be the antecedent of the word. Well, he is the antecedent of the word his, the next phrase, his son, Jesus Christ. So there's the Father, him who is true, and his, his son. His is the, the word his is referring to the Father, obviously. Now, grammatically, it is possible that the word this in that very last phrase also is pointing back to him who is true. That would be the Father, God the Father. But normally with grammar, the word that's closest to the pronoun would be the noun that's closest to the pronoun is what it's pointing back to. And that would be his son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Normally that's the case. So it's a name. Jesus Christ. So it would read like this. We are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ. Is the true God. And the eternal life. That would be an incredible verse. Affirming the full divinity of Jesus Christ. If that's a correct way to do it. Grammatically. You could go either way. But he is the closest. Antecedent to that. Word this. Right. So I think it's him. Now we don't need that for the doctrine of, of Christ's divinity. He's, the Bible teaches us that everywhere. We talked about Colossians chapter 2. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's right there. You don't need anything more than that. And John's gospel begins with an amazingly clear statement of the divinity of Christ. Christ being God and the maker of all things. And John's gospel ends with a declaration that Christ is God. Because Thomas sees the risen Christ and he says my Lord and my God. So it's all there beginning and end everywhere else. But it's just really rather wonderful that it says that here too to me. This is the true God. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. It's beautiful. The true God and eternal life. Okay, our time is up. And look, we've got one more verse to go. 1 John 5.21. His final sentence. His final words. And we'll do that. That's right. Next time. Let's pray. Our great Lord, our, our maker, you have not left us alone in the world. You, human beings left you, but you pursued us purely out of love. The world and its wickedness is condemned, but what a savior you've sent to us. The true God, eternal life. And that life is found only in his blood because he bore our sins. He grants us life freely. He took us out of the world's camp and placed us safely in his kingdom. For that, our great Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.